0: Amen. All right. Well, tonight we are looking at chapter five and we're looking at all of chapter five. So we're just going to preach right through. It's only 13 verses, so don't worry. Um, And it's just one big theme. And so we had to take the whole chapter, but really it's the title is boasting in the midst of sin, boasting in the midst of sin. Now chapters one through four, we saw where Paul laid out the problem of pride in the church, the divisions that were happening, people bragging about who their teachers were, and, and this arrogance that the church of Corinth had. Now in chapter five, he pivots a little bit, and he now begins to address particular problems or sins in the church of Corinth. And so really tonight in chapter five, we're gonna see three things. We're gonna see the perversion, the problem, and the purging of the church of Corinth. We're going to see the perversion, the problem, and the purging of the church at Corinth. So let's go ahead and look at verse one as we look at this perversion. Now, perversion, by the way, sin, any sin is really just a perversion of God's initial plan for something. Uh, it's, it's a perversion. So let's take marriage. Uh, adultery and sexual sin is a perversion Of what god initially planned for sex to be in marriage anything outside of that is a perversion what about greed greed is just a perversion of the 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 ordained work ethic that god has given to provide and to work and to trust god for our daily needs we pray for our daily bread and we're to be satisfied with that but greed is a perversion of that and takes us to a place that says i need more I need way more. And I got to keep on working and working for all of this kind of stuff because my, my greed has taken over. Well, that's a perversion of what God has intended for us as far as meeting our needs. And so every sin is really a perversion of the, the ultimate natural ordaining of God's plan for something. Now, in 1 Corinthians verse 1, we see this particular perversion Paul's talking about. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And so obviously here, this sin of adultery is, uh, again, sexual relations outside of marriage. As as we've said, that's what that word means. Anything outside of the marriage bounds of of that institution is sin, any sex outside of that. So uh, naturally, adultery is bad, but it's not just adultery here. Okay, Corinth was full of adultery. Corinth is a wicked city. Okay, I mean, it's, it's the uh, uh, San Francisco, L.A. combined of, of this, this, this early time of the New Testament here, right? Um, so, so Paul points out that it wasn't just adultery. I mean, most of the you know, people wouldn't even be shocked, but whatever this is, Paul said, even the pagans are shocked at what's going on in the church of Corinth. And what it happens to be is it's incest. Uh, and it said, Paul even said, that, that makes even the pagans blush. Uh, this man had his father's wife, probably a stepmother. Um, and yet it's, it's something that caused even the pagans to blush. Now, it's not a one-time act here because that word there where he says, for it's reported commonly, by the way, that's, that's what he says in the first few verses, the first, first few words. It is actually Reported. That word actually means completely or commonly. It was well known, is what Paul is saying, <laughs> what's going on in your church. And this idea here is that it's not a one-time act because he said that a man has his father's wife. And that word has is in the present active indicative, which means continual habitual Uh, It's not just a one-time thing. It's continuing up to this very moment uh, of Paul's writing. So having said that, it's interesting as as we see here that it's the man, right? Paul's talking about the man caught in adultery. Isn't that interesting? That's the exact opposite of what we see in John chapter 8, where the woman was caught in adultery, and everybody says, where's the man? Where's the man? Uh, We're only talking about the woman. We're only accusing the woman and the man got off scot-free. Well, here in this case, it's the man who is brought up for charges. It is the man who's accused, and not, not a word about the woman. Now, why is that? What's, what's going on here? And I believe it's probably because she's not a believer. And Paul deals with that here, specifically in this chapter, where in verse 12, he talks about the fact that we are not to judge the world, those who are outside of the church, those who are outside of Christ, but we're to judge those who are in the church, those who are in Christ, believers. So I would say that the reason that we don't hear of who this woman is, is she's not a believer, so Paul has no, no uh, judgment on her. But the man claims to be a believer, and he's a member of the church at Corinth, therefore he's under the authority of those elders, and Paul is saying this needs to be dealt with. This man must be held uh, accountable. He's not repentant, obviously. The sin is continuing on at this moment. He's unrepentant, and therefore, Paul's dealing uh, w- with that. So, as bad as that is, I mean, as bad as this situation is right now, that, that, that perversion of the sex act with this man with his uh, stepmother, that's not the main problem that Paul's worried about. The main problem we see in verse 2. Look what he says. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul's concern is that they are arrogant. The problem that alarmed him more than the sin itself of adultery was that the church was arrogant and prideful in its tolerance of the sin, so so, the idea there is is they were they were proud about how open minded they were, <laughs> they were proud about how accepting and affirming they were of this sexual perversion, and does that set? It's familiar, right, with our day and age. When 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 churches become proud of the fact that they are open-minded about something that God says is perversion, there is a problem. Paul is right to be more concerned with the fact that this church is open-minded about tolerating this sin than they are uh, about mourning over this sin. I mean, when you think about this, there should have been great mourning Mourning and repentance. This is what calling out sin is for. We're going to see as we look at this chapter how really loving God is for his people to hold us accountable. And that's, we're really safe as a believer if we're truly saved in a local church where there is true accountability and sin is called out. And mourning happens. Weeping happens. Brokenness happens. Repentance happens. And then ultimately restoration and joy is restored. That's glorious. But look at this. As we look at this, obviously we're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? The church is in the world, so we understand that. But we're not to be of it. We're not to begin to tolerate it. We're not to begin to, to even brag about the fact that we're, you know, hey, we accept the stuff you guys accept, I mean, this church was not living according to Peter's instructions. In 1 Peter, look at what what he said. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The Gentiles, the pagans. And so Peter's telling us, as the church we're not to have the, the, the pagans look at us and say, oh, they're just like us. But, but we, we are also to have the pagans respect and say, hey, there's no charge we can bring it against them. The church of Corinth, the pagans are looking in and saying, look what they permit. <laughs> look what they accept. And yet Paul is saying, look, you're, you're, you're sojourners, you're strangers. And yet your conduct should be honorable among the Gentiles so that when they do speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There'll be evil spoken of the church by the world. That's gonna happen. But let that evil that is spoken towards us from the world be concerning the gospel. Let the evil be concerning the standards of God's law that we hold to. Don't let the evil be our attitudes and our sin and our affirming of wickedness. Let the, the anger to- from the world towards us and the accusations that come be because they can't stand that we say there's one Savior, one Savior only. Let it be the fact that we stand and say, you are in sin and a holy God will hold you accountable. Repent. And we say that in love. But don't let it be misconduct morally within your church. Don't let it be something that the world looks at and laughs and says, look at that sin going on, those hypocrites. And it's happened and it will because we're all full of sinners and we're all humans. But as Peter says, we should strive to our utmost and with our utmost to call out the wickedness among us so that when the world sees us, they can only accuse us of preaching Christ. And let that make them angry. angry. The The gospel will offend The gospel will offend. Let that be the only offensive thing that the world sees in us. Now, look, what else did he say? This is the the mentality we have to understand. He calls them sojourners and exiles. That's foreigners, strangers, aliens, basically saying we're not of this world anymore. We have been bought out of the world, transformed into new creatures. So we are literally aliens on this planet at this point, Paul is saying. So so therefore, we don't take on the customs and the rituals of this world anymore. We've given those up, and we've now taken on the customs and rituals of our new kingdom. That's the idea of believers living in the church in the world. So the church in the world is this outpost of heaven. And and we build each other up. We encourage each other in the Word of God through prayer and, and studying the Word of God and encouraging one another to go back out into the world and love the world, but also live as people who are totally different in our attitudes, our philosophies, our methodologies. Everything is going to be different than that of this world. What we accept, what we don't accept, it's going to be, it's going to be different. Here's something. I, <laughs> because when you think about, when you're a visitor, to a foreign country, right, I, uh, I'm sure many of us or even a foreign state, if you've been to California, okay, like a foreign country maybe, right, <laughs> just kidding, but, you know, yeah. state to state, it can be different, customs, different things, and, and sometimes you're going to look odd, you're going to feel different, you're, you're not going to fit in, and that's okay, because you're a tourist, right, you're a visitor, that's not your home base, or your home custom, you're, you're, so of course, You're going to be different. So I think that's what Peter's idea was, saying to the church, it's okay to feel this way. And yet Corinth is an example of what happens to a a church, to a people, to Christians, when, when the church becomes more concerned with pleasing the culture around them than they are about pleasing the king who called them as his ambassador to that culture. Does that make sense? Many churches have fallen into this where they're more concerned about capitulating to the culture than they are about standing strong as an ambassador from a foreign country and representing joyfully yet sternly, solidly standing for the king who they represent and the kingdom that they represent. And so I think that's exactly what Paul is telling the church of Corinth you are proud and tolerant. You're proud of the tolerance you have towards sin, and that's going to destroy you. So notice the last part of that verse. We see the perversion, we see the bigger problem, the perversion of sin, and the problem of accepting it and being proud of it because the world says, hey, look at us, hey, we're fitting right in with you guys, that kind of concept. And yet the last part of this, we see the third point. Look at verse 2, the last part of it. It says, let him who has done this be removed from you. So there's the purging, the purging. As a matter of fact, the last verse, verse 13, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. So that's Paul's wording, this idea. It sounds rough. I mean, this, what we're talking about here is simply the doctrine of church discipline, something that's uh, not practiced very much and very much looked down upon in the days we live. You know, I mean, again, most churches, their whole mentality is, you've got to do everything for the consumer. We've got to get as many consumers in here as we can. We've got to do what we can to please them. Are you kidding to hold them accountable for something and actually call out their sin and then purge them if they sin and do not repent? Well, that's the craziest. And yet, the Bible church, the church of the New Testament, it didn't seem like gathering crowds was its main focus. It seemed like bringing glory to God was its main focus. And it, it seemed like making disciples of Christ was its main focus. It seemed like proclaiming the Word of God and proclaiming the truth was one of its main focuses. It seems like holding those members who did join the church and proclaim that they were saved by the grace of God, part of that job of the church its priority was to hold them accountable to the word of god and yes ultimately in this case that paul is bringing before us part of that responsibility to the unrepentant stubborn rebellious sinner was to purge them to remove them last resort it's the last thing that we would ever want to do but it's biblical to remove them. We see it right here in the Bible. Paul said that. I didn't make this up. And as a matter of fact, I, I, I don't know any pastor in his right mind that likes to do that. And yet, if we are going to be a church of the New Testament, then we'd better live by the New Testament. We submit ourselves to God. And the elders of our church, thank God we take the commission seriously and literally and somberly, that we, as according to Hebrews, will stand and give account to God for how we led and preached to the people of this church. It, it's us that has to give an account one day. So Paul goes on in verses three through five to kind of explain this much forgotten doctrine of church discipline, this idea that the church is here to actually look out for the souls of people for eternity's sake, not just a few moments of happiness in this world, but the ultimate thing is we are looking out for the souls of people that they may gain eternity through Christ. And if they are somehow misled to think that they are saved when they're not, it will be made known, it will be brought to light by their unrepentant attitude, by by this drawing into sin and then being happy there and living there. And if a church condones that and looks over it and actually brags about it, they're simply making that person a twofold child of hell. They're simply going ahead and, and, and causing them to blindly walk into hell. They're condoning them and giving them false assurance. And yet, Paul says, No, no, no. Remove such a one from you. Look what he goes on to say. He'll explain more verses three through five. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul has heard probably from Chloe, as we already learned, um, and some others that have have traveled and met Paul, and and he's heard just again, he said it's commonly known what's going on here. He knows that this individual, this man is not repentant, that he is continuing stubbornly in his sin, and that the church is is basically codependent in this. The the church is uh, enabling this man not confronting this man and so paul says i'm absent but i've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing and here's what he says when you are assembled in the name of the lord jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our lord jesus you are to deliver this man to satan for the destruction of the flesh now, that is strong language but it is the bible This is Paul giving giving instructions to a New Testament church how to deal with sin. And he says to the unrepentant sinner who will not listen to godly counsel that the ultimate step is to separate that person, deliver them by doing so, by, by removing them from the safeguard of the church in a sense by removing them from membership of that church you're turning them over to satan for the destruction of the flesh why look at the last part so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord paul's ultimate goal here is the eternal salvation of this man not his instant gratification now in this world in this life so again we can we, we got a choice as as pastors, and even as fellow church members. We can pacify a member who's in sin. We can look over it. We can tolerate it. And that does nothing for their eternal soul except damn them. Or we can be faithful to take God's word at his word and confront them in love, follow God's standard, and ultimately see them come back around by the grace of God and rest in the glory of Christ, in the work of Christ and be saved. That's the idea. If, we, if, if this whole thing is real, folks, this makes sense. If there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, then all of this makes sense. This passage actually mirrors Matthew 18. So we're going to take a moment while we're talking about church discipline because, again, it is such a, a concept that many people, you know, in our day and age don't hear about. And when they do, they get offended. and says, your church does what? It gets, kicks people out. <laughs> what well look let's learn about let's see what the bible says this is not the only place where the bible says this this mirrors what jesus taught us in matthew 18 verses 15 through 17 it says if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've gained a brother that's the idea of what church discipline is you confront sin if a brother sins go to him confront him If he repents, you've gained a brother. But look at what he says. If if he listens, you gain a brother. But then verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Look at the grace here. And this is biblical. By the way, some churches abuse this on the other side. And they don't follow all these uh, biblical guidelines. And sometimes discipline can be done out of anger a personal vendetta of a pastor to a member, that's ungodly as well. It must always be done in love, and these steps must be taken. Notice, one person goes, confronts a brother. He doesn't listen. You don't just give up then. You take another couple of brothers with you, and two or three people confront. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then to them, tell it to the church, the assembly. Take him before, at that point, once you've tried, and you've taken other people, and they've tried, and there's still rebellion and anger and stubbornness and, and non repentance, then that final step, bring it to the church. And again, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector what is that that's a pagan that's a non-believer that's what that's what jesus is saying he's no more a part of your of your fellowship so paul is clear that, that again that this action and in jesus is clear about this but paul especially there in in um cor- cor- corinthians he's clear that this action is done not only for the good of the sinner he was clear about that right The action is done for the good of the sinner, that they may be saved. But it's also done for the good of the church, that it may be preserved, that it may be pure. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, he goes on and explains this. (laughs) Your boasting is not good, he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here's his concern and the truth. We think sin is just personal. We think my sin just affects me, no. Our sin affects everybody around us. In your family, when you sin, it affects everybody in your family. If you're a member of this church, this is your family. It affects all of us. We learned this lesson even back in, in the days of the Israelites as they're moving and trying to take over the promised land, one city after another, and they go to Ai, and what happens? I mean, they take Jericho, right? God gives them the grace, the walls fall. Boom, they take mighty Jericho. Then there's this little Ai, right? This little city. They think, ah, we don't need that many people. Let's just go take that. <laughs> and they get squashed. The Israelites get defeated. What happened? Well, ultimately what we find out is there's one guy, Achan. He sinned. He didn't obey God's law. He, God said, don't take any spoil. This guy took some spoil. He took some things. Nobody will know. He buried it in his tent took a few jewels and a nice jacket he wanted and, and uh, you know, whatever, new laptop. I don't know. He found some things. He said, hey, nobody's going to know. I'll stick this in my tent. Great. Because of one man's sin, the whole nation of Israel suffered. So it does affect us, especially in the church. This is, this is not just a physical phenomenon. It's a spiritual truth. It's a spiritual thing. When we grieve the Holy Spirit in this body, we are all grieved. It affects all of us. And so this is what he's saying. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's what, and now, see, I'm not really much of a bread maker myself, but I understand the concept that we studying this, right? You 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 knead the dough and all that. Need, is that the word? Need, you, you, the dough, right? And then what's going to happen? You want to put that dough in the oven and you want the bread to rise, correct? Well, it's not going to rise until you put leaven or yeast or whatever, right, in there, the little leaven. And then it mixes in and it affects the whole loaf because the whole loaf rises. So that little leaven affects the whole loaf. That's the, that's the concept. And most of the Bible uses leaven as a picture of sin and how it's contagious in a sense, how it affects every part of what it touches, And that's what Paul's saying here. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. Cleanse the leaven. Get rid of it. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Oh, I love that, man. Paul's talking to the church. What is the church? It consists of believers. Those who've been born again, new creatures. Christ lives in them. They gather together. They're his temple. We've we've seen that, right? Together, we make up the temple. God meets with us. So Paul's saying, hey, be a a new lump as you really are unleavened. How are we unleavened? There's, There's a purity going on. That's through Christ. We've been made pure in Christ. So Paul's saying, realistically, you are pure in Christ. But the old flesh, right, keeps... Grabbing on to sin. And so look what he says. This is glorious. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb. So now he's going to use this this Passover motif. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's how you're unleavened. So let me finish the verse first, okay? Let's read it again. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival of Passover, not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So look at this. Paul, using this picture of leaven, we understand all that, but look at the Passover picture. The leaven is is very closely tied to Passover. If we go back to the Passover feast, God commanded them, get rid of the leaven. There could be no leaven in the bread. None. None. And then you are to celebrate this feast once a year. So think about this. The Israelites celebrated Passover once a year, they sacrificed the lamb once a year, they they got rid of the leaven once a year. All right? But look what Paul says. (laughs) Because Jesus, our Passover sacrifice, Once sacrificed once for all time, we perpetually celebrate Passover. Therefore, the the implication is, therefore, we are perpetually getting rid of the leaven. We're perpetually getting rid of the leaven in our lives. we got to continually confess sin because we are continually celebrating the Passover of our Passover lamb, Christ, who has made us pure. Why then, if we've been made pure and made new in Christ and he has died for us and we've died with him and been risen with him, why would we continue to mess with leaven? <laughs> that's the implication. And that's why we need to get rid of it. Every waking moment, it's going to keep creeping in. We get rid of it. We confess it. And that's the value of a local church. We help each other get rid of it because we already know that our old flesh is It's conniving and it justifies things, and we don't see ourselves the way we should. We, we have a, 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 you know, a very selfish angle of ourselves, right? When we take a selfie and look at our, we don't see no sin. We've got a, we got a filter on our mind, <laughs> like the, what is the selfie filter? Is that not the selfie filter, but whatever, the Instagram, you post a, you put a filter on there, and you look like some millionaire, or some movie star, rather, takes away all the blemishes, and pimples, and makes you look perfect i don't know well that's how we as sinners look at ourselves. we justify ourselves i don't see any sin it's okay but our brother over here our sister over here looks at us and says good night what a pimple <laughs> <laughs> somebody's got to pop that I mean, that's gross i don't know where i'm going this was not in my notes <laughs> but i mean it, it beats the old plank in the beam right But I mean, it's the same idea. We go and we say, you, you got a problem. You're in sin. You've got to get rid of that. It's affecting you, but it's affecting me. It's ugly and it hurts all of us. And so that's the idea of getting rid of the leaven and the glory of the church is we help each other do that. That's where we're going to be loving to each other, but also honest with each other and not afraid to confront each other in love because it's for the ultimate good of all of us. That's what Paul's teaching here. Now look as we end up here, just, just verses nine through 13. He just continues to point, bring this point home. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And again, he always leads with sexual immorality because Corinth was known for this. It was in their temple worship. It was in their business practices, sexual favors everywhere. It was just part of life. Sounds familiar. We are in a very sex crazed culture ourselves. And yet God's people are to not, are not to associate with sexual immoral people. And he says, not at all, meaning the sexual immoral of this world. Now this is interesting. He's talking about Christians who claim to be Christians and are leading others to commit sexual sin. Don't associate with them. On the other hand, if you run into somebody in the world that's lost and they are involved in sexual sin, engage with them to lead them to Christ. But not, of course, obviously, to get so involved that we get taken into sin. But look what he says. He goes on that broad. He leads with that sexual immorality. He says, not at all meaning the sexual moral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world altogether. What he's saying is if you're trying to ignore and stay away from any sexual sinner or swindler or liar or thief. You'd have to go to planet Mars. You'd have to leave the world because the world's full of sinners. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Do you see there? Paul's being very specific now. He's saying this is what we're talking about. I'm not talking about shunning those in the world who are sinners, you'd have to shun the whole world. I'm talking about those who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have claimed to be dead to sin. If there's a brother or sister who continues in their drunkenness, or they're lying, or they're stealing, or their immorality in sexual uh, a sexual lifestyle, and they will not repent, don't even eat. With them, put such a one out, and, and this again is a, is a tough thing. And we've brought this up in our disciplinary cases where we tell people, even though we love this person, our interaction with them has got to be to pray with them, to counsel them, and to bring them back into fellowship with Christ. But it cannot be to sit around and just live like everything's fine and that the relationship goes on like normal because it doesn't for those who are professing to know Christ. He goes on to say, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? I'm talking about the church, you judge each other. We're to do that according to the word of God and by its standards. And he goes on, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? See, Paul verifies that. Are we to judge? Yes judge not lest you be judged i know everybody's gonna throw that matthew 7 up like we said a few weeks ago but we got to have the whole bible and we got to put all of that in context and all he's saying is when you judge somebody be sure that you're willing to be judged by that same standard that's what matthew 7 means and then paul commands us through the authority of christ that we are to judge each other by the same standard and it's the word of god those of us in the church are to hold each other accountable not those in the, we ca- I cannot hold those in the world accountable to the morality of God. This should give us some peace. I don't have to go out and make every gay person straight. I don't have to go out and make every person who had an abortion uh, not have an abortion. I don't have to go out and kill every thief to stop being a thief and take back what he stole. I, that's not—you see what I'm saying, folks? I'm to preach Christ to those people. I'm to tell them they need to repent and, and trust Christ and his forgiveness— And be transformed by his grace. Yes. But I can't judge them because they're doing doing what they're supposed to do. (laughs) Do you know what a sinner without Christ is supposed to do? Sin. Just like we all did. That's what that's what the nature is. It's like going out to a dog who barks and say, stop barking. You need to start meowing. Lots of luck. Not gonna happen. But those whose natures have been changed by God's grace through the gospel, and they profess that. We go to them in love and hold them accountable for the sake of their eternal soul. God judges the outside world. We we just say, Lord, that's up to you. But I'm accountable to my brothers and sisters in this church. God judges those who are outside. Then he ends, ends with these words. Purge the evil person from among you. The one who will not repent, who will not submit to the word of God, will not repent, will not seek restoration. You purge them. Why? For the destruction of their flesh. They'll go out to the world, out of the safeguard of the church, out into the world, and one of two things will happen. They will either have a ball and never return. Live, a, live life to the, quote, fullest. Or they will be miserable. They will become broken. They will begin to miss the fellowship and the joy of God's people. They will feel remorse and brokenness over sinning against their loving Heavenly Father. And they will repent And they will come home, and we will welcome them with open arms and restore them to the fellowship of God's people. That's what the Bible teaches here. So in conclusion, our takeaway should be to abhor sin. All of us here tonight, I mean, we should be reminded to abhor sin, to understand that we should not arrogantly continue or even condone sin in ourselves or in other people. We, we should be reminded that it is that sin that caused a holy God to crush his son on a cross. And we should abhor it. We should hate it. And we should purge that leaven from our lives on a daily basis. And we should also appreciate our brothers and sisters when they come to us and point out those marrings, those pimples, those, those beams in our eye of sin because that's telling us that they love us enough to put put it all on the line. And let us be grateful for that. And let's do that. Let's be faithful to love each other that much. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. And specifically, Father, I'll say, we thank you for this church where we are willing to submit ourselves to the standards of your word. It's not easy. Many times it's painful, but it is overwhelmingly joyful at the end of the day to be submitted to a Father who loves us enough to tell us no, but then to also tell us yes in Christ. So Father, let us rejoice in this ability to come together, to worship together, to sing together, to praise together, and to correct each other, and to continue walking together all the way to Zion's gates because of your grace and because of the perfect finished work of Christ. We worship you now. In his name we pray. Amen.